Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Um, now this morning, we're going to start to really get into the meat of the series we kicked off last week called Flourish. And the whole idea behind the series, I believe that God created us to do more than just survive. I think he wants us to grow and to become the people he designed us to be. And the way that we're going to experience that is by growing towards spiritual maturity. And so last week, we kind of identified five uh, stages of spiritual growth. I just want to walk back through them real quick as a recap. The first stage is the unborn, and these are people who just haven't yet made that decision to go all in with Jesus, and so what they need is they just need to spend more time with him, and once we make that decision to follow Jesus, we'll go to the next stage of spiritual growth, that's spiritual infancy, and uh, really this stage is marked um, really a lot in ways that a regular infant would be marked. I don't know if you've talked to an infant recently. They're cute, cuddly. I'm not going to go to them for life advice and wisdom because they're still learning. They have a lot of life in front of them. And in the same way, spiritual infants, they they need to learn. There's so much about following the way of Jesus. They have to to grasp and to grow in. And so it's important for them to to develop the habits of scripture reading, prayer, fasting, Sabbathing, to really build that foundation for spiritual growth. Now, the next stage then would be that of a a child. And we all love children, but but all children are kind of selfish. And in the same way, a spiritual child, they're, they're following Jesus, but oftentimes they'll follow him as long as they're getting something out of it. Or they'll serve if, if it's at the service they prefer to go to. Or they'll, they'll give, but they don't want to give too much. And so they're, they're still following Jesus, but they've still got their hands around a whole lot in their life they're not ready to surrender yet. And so what they need is they need someone to hold them accountable. Somebody who will challenge them, who will uh, really push them. And they also need to have some humility to take and accept that feedback and apply it in their life. And if they do, they'll grow to become a spiritual young adult. And young adults are really marked by selflessness. So they see interruptions not as inconveniences, but as opportunities. So this is like tomorrow, somebody's going to walk into your office and you're in the middle of a project, but will you stop to listen and spend some time ministering to them? Maybe you know somebody in your neighborhood, they're experiencing a health crisis, and would you allow yourself to be inconvenienced to take a meal over to that family? There's always looking for opportunities to minister to and serve others. And then eventually the last stage of spiritual growth would be the spiritual parent. And and the big difference between a parent and a young adult is is in intentionality. Because young adults, they're serving, they're ministering, they're meeting needs. But what a parent does, a parent is always asking themselves, how can I help somebody else take steps of spiritual growth? How can I help an infant become a child, a child become a young adult? How can I help other young adults become parents just like me? And so over the next five to six weeks, we're going to spend a week on each one of these stages, and we're really going to dive in depth. And so um, I'm going to take my time on Sunday morning to talk about, okay, if you are in this particular stage, here's how you grow beyond that. But if you've got your devotional guide and you're in a life group, those are going to guide you during the week to teach you how you can help somebody else who's in that stage grow beyond it. So Sunday mornings, I'm going to be teaching to a certain stage and how you can grow. And then during the week, it's how you can help other people take those same steps. That makes sense? All right, so today we are going to talk about that first stage, which is the spiritually unborn. Um, And so I kind of want to give this caveat at the beginning. I'm going to make a couple of assumptions. 
The first one is this. I think there may be a handful of people who are here today, and this is the stage that you are in. You're still exploring. You're still pursuing. You're trying to figure out what this whole Jesus thing is all about. And if that's the stage you're in, I'm so happy. I hope today is helpful to you. Um, and I would encourage you continue to continue to pursue truth, continue to ask questions. That's a big value for us here at Bridgepoint. That's why we have a text-in number every week. As I'm teaching, text in any questions you have. We set aside time at the end of each service to answer those questions. It's not because the answers are great, because I want you to know, like, pursuing the truth requires that we engage our minds and we ask questions. It's going to help us grow closer to Jesus. But the second assumption that I'm going to make is that the vast majority of people in this room have probably at some point already made a decision to follow Jesus. And, and I'm going to make that assumption because it's, you know, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. You got up, you got your kids ready, you made it to church when you could be at brunch. So you're like, you're in this Jesus thing. So it's going to be tempting for you today to check out and say, you know what, I've, I've already taken that step. I'm moving beyond that. But I want to encourage you to, to really lean in this morning because I think it's a reminder to us of what the gospel message really is. Because I think a lot of us, if we were really pressed, what is the gospel? We would say something like this. Well, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we've incurred God's wrath. And we're going to spend an eternity separated from him in hell. But God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place. And if we believe in him, then one day after we die, we get to go and spend eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from him in hell. And for a lot of us, that's what we believe is kind of the primary message of the gospel. Now, if you've been at Bridgepoint for some time, we talked about some of the issues with that. I think the biggest one is um, the, the Bible, uh, because that, the, the Bible doesn't tell a story where the two main counterparts are heaven and hell. In fact, those two words never appear in the same verse in the Bible together. See, the two main counterparts are not heaven and hell. It's always heaven and earth. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that other view, that there's not some truth to that. But the story of the Bible is so much bigger than many of us give it credit for. And to kind of illustrate that I believe Jesus understood his purposes bringing heaven to earth, I want to look at a conversation he has with somebody in John chapter 3. But before we dive into that, give me like 10 minutes to give you some historical background. And I know some of you are like, this is going to be great. And I'm going to take notes. We'll talk about this in life group. And some of you are like, 10 minutes sounds like a long time. I promise there will be a payoff to it in the end. Because Jesus is going to be having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were kind of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And if you've read the Gospels before, sometimes the Pharisees come across as these like old curmudgeons who are just legalistic and they're mad at everybody and they just, they're, they're angry all the time. They want to make sure everybody's following the rules. And, and I think there's some truth to that. But the reality is the Pharisees were people who really did love God and they actually wanted to see God move in a powerful way. They just went about it the completely wrong approach. See, in this time period, amongst the Jewish people, there was a belief that the whole history of the world was divided up into two different ages. The first age is called this present age. And so I got some pictures to help illustrate this. I'm a visual learner. Now, this present age, the world we live in now, it's marked by sin, oppression, suffering, death. I mean, we could probably list a whole litany of things. So when you look around at the world, it does feel like a broken place. It doesn't always feel like things are going great. In fact, sometimes it seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse. 
Now, for the Jewish people, they would see this age like really started all the way back in Genesis. Uh, the Genesis story, we touched on it last week. The primary word that the Bible uses to describe God's original design for creation, it's not perfection, it's not spotless, it's the word good. Like he saw it and it was good. And as you read the story of creation, there's like an abundance of resources. Everything is teeming with life. And out of all that, God carves out a space, a garden in Eden, that really could probably best be described as heaven on earth. And it's in this place that God puts Adam and Eve, and it says he created them to be his images, which doesn't mean they looked like God. It meant they acted like God. They were supposed to continue his mission of bringing heaven to earth, go out and subdue the earth. Everywhere there's disorder, bring order. God wanted Adam and Eve to the work for the flourishing of all creation. But they're given an option on whether or not they want to do this. God didn't create them to be robots who are just going to be set on a path and continue that way forever. So in the garden, there's two trees with names. There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells him, you can be my images and eat from any tree, even the tree of life, and live forever. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, let me decide what's good, what's evil. Let me decide what's right and wrong. Let me be your source of wisdom. Now, the very next thing we read about is a conversation that Eve has with what? A serpent, right? And by the way, we get to, like, it's like, can we get, like, to page two of the Bible before we get to talking animals? I mean, it's just like, it's a big leap for some people to take. And I don't know about you, but, you know, if, if I see a snake, I'm headed the other direction. But if I went home today and I found a serpent in my backyard that started talking to me, we're just going to burn the place down. It's time to move. We're done with that. But, but for Eve, she seems to have this conversation like she's not even phased by it. This is one of those weird things that sometimes as followers of Jesus are like, yeah, I'm not really sure what this is all about. And I don't know that I have a definitive answer. But I do kind of wonder if the fact that Eden is heaven on earth. It's this place that's populated not just with human beings, but could it also be populated with spiritual beings? I mean, we know that God is with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so if there are spiritual beings, in the Old Testament, we read of several different kinds. One of them is called a seraphim, which actually the he Hebrew, if you translate it directly, means fiery serpent. And these fiery serpents are described as having wings and leading worship in the heavenly courts. And so could it be that Eve is not thrown off that she would see a spiritual being and that maybe she'd even seen this same winged fiery serpent before leading in worship, which is why maybe she inherently trusts this fiery serpent to engage in conversation to begin with. And as they have this conversation, ultimately Adam and Eve choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all of a sudden sin enters into the world. By the way, I also think that that's why one of the punishments for the serpent is that it would have to crawl on its belly on the ground. Because if you used to have wings and could fly and now you have to crawl on the ground, that's a pretty big punishment. So, so maybe, I don't know, take that for what you will. But we get this idea that Adam and Eve, instead of imaging God, decided to image the serpent. Instead of working for what God wanted, they ended up being an agent of chaos and destruction themselves. And what I have found is that we're all imaging something and we actually become enslaved to the very things that we image. 
So for example, if you really want to image uh, success in life, then all of a sudden you become enslaved to your work and your career and your accomplishments. If you want to, to, to uh, really image wealth and, and into the world, then you become a slave to finances. You want to image love and adoration in the world, you can become enslaved to bouncing from relationship to relationship. Lust and adultery are around the corner. We become enslaved to the things that we image. And that's exactly what happens to Adam and Eve is they become enslaved. And by the way, this is kind of the the course of history from that point on. That's why it's this present age. So we can look around and see people who have been enslaved. Maybe we've all felt enslaved to certain things at moments in time. And so there was this belief that one day there would be a special day called the Day of the Lord. So back to the timeline here. We're going to have the arrow pointing down. This is the Day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord would be the day where God wipes all of this present age away and he brings about something called the age that is to come. And the age that is to come is going to be marked by many things. I just put a few of them up here. Shalom, this idea of peace, like like people are at peace with one another. There's no more violence. There's no more division. It's a new covenant. There's a new way for people to be back in relationship with God. It's marked by resurrection. This was a huge thing. Like they knew the age to come will happen when there is resurrection. And then the last big thing I like to point out is they looked at it as as a time when the Holy Spirit would be available to everybody. Because when you read the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit really was only given to certain people at certain times for specific tasks. But then they knew the age to come would be here when everybody had access to the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you know when the day of the Lord is here? Well, the day of the Lord, they believe that a Messiah would come and kind of inaugurate this new age. And by the time Jesus hits the scene, they don't just believe there's one Messiah, but there would be two. That one would be like a high priest who would bring about this spiritual revolution, and the other would be like this warrior king who would mount an army to overthrow the Romans or whoever else was opposing God's people. And so the Pharisees looked at this whole thing, and they really wanted to figure out how can we bring about the day of the Lord? Because they looked around at God's people, and they would look back to a day where the Jewish people were a part of the nation of Israel that had wealth, that had a strong military, had influence on the national and global stage, and then now they're oppressed. They're living as subjects of another empire. I mean, they look out to Roman soldiers walking up and down the streets, and they understood that we are in this position now because we have conformed to the power of sin. So all we have to do to force God to send the Messiah or the Messiahs is we just need to get everybody to follow the law. Like, let's just go back and get everybody to follow God's commands in Scripture. And so they actually were so passionate about this that they did something called fencing the law. And what fencing the law was is, um, let's say there was a a law that you are not supposed to wear closed-toed shoes on Sunday. Okay, that's not in the Bible, but let's say it was. What they would do is say, you know what? We should never wear shoes on Sunday. Because if we never wear shoes, we're not going to wear closed-toed shoes. And then we avoid the whole discussion of how many straps on a sandal until it's considered closed-toed shoes. And so we're just going to go above and beyond. And so they add in all of these extra commands. In fact, there's a command from God that says, uh, remember the Sabbath and honor it as holy. And so they came up with dozens of different ways to distinguish, here's what it looks like. Like if somebody's life is in danger, you can help them. 
But if your animal falls down a well and life is not in danger, then don't help it up. Like you can do that on a different day. And so they have all of these different rules with the sole purpose of getting God to send the Messiah. Are we still tracking? Now you can start to see then why they would get frustrated at somebody like Jesus. Because Jesus is hanging out with people like prostitutes, tax collectors, sick people, all of the sinners that are actually preventing the day of the Lord from coming, that's who Jesus is around. Not only that, but Jesus does not care about the commands that the Pharisees have come up with. So he will eat on the Sabbath and he will heal on the Sabbath. Like he's just stepping all over their rules. And so they're getting frustrated. They say, Jesus, we're trying to get people to follow God's commands and you are leading them astray. And so there's all this frustration about Jesus. But at the same time, he's starting to pique the curiosity of some of these Pharisees because they look at the things that are going to be in the age to come, like resurrection, and all of a sudden Jesus is out there resurrecting people. Like they're looking forward to a day when the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, and Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to pour out the Holy Spirit on everybody. Like Jesus is looking forward to that day that's called the age that is to come. Now, the last thing you need to know before we hop into this conversation is the age that is to come is not the only thing that that age was called. It was also referred to as the kingdom of God, which is important because all throughout scripture, whether it's Luke 4, find any gospel, Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's saying, guys, I have come to bring about this day and age that you've been waiting for. Like, this is what I am here to do. Say like the kingdom of God is already here. It's among you. Like it's right here, right now, but it is also called eternal life. Because in the Greek, the phrase eternal life, it actually means um, life of the age is how it's translated. And this is how they would refer to, there is a certain way of living that everyone will conform to in the age that is to come. Because there will be no more sin, there will be no more pain, there will be no more death. And so when people come to Jesus, and like the rich young ruler, and they say, "Uh, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? They're not asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? Because otherwise, Jesus, well, Jesus never said, like, just believe the right things. No, what did he say? He said, well, keep all the commands. Because one day, this whole world, like this present age, will be put away. It will perish. And the only thing that's left is everything that aligns with God. So keep all the commands. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done that since I was really young. And Jesus says, great. Now sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. He's saying, hey, listen, that money is still this thing in the present age that you are holding on to, and you need to let that go so that your whole life can be conformed to the way of God. Does that make sense? Yes, no, maybe. If not, just tell me. We'll take some questions. So this is all important because apparently Nicodemus has heard some of these teachings, and he wants to come talk to Jesus. But he comes at night because he doesn't want his integrity questioned with the other Pharisees who still don't like Jesus. And they begin to have this conversation. That's where we'll jump in John chapter three, verse one. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, this Pharisee, 
who's been waiting for the day of the Lord, who's been waiting for resurrection, who's been waiting for shalom, who's been waiting for the Holy Spirit, who's been waiting for God to fix everything, comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're sent from God because of the way that you're teaching and even the miracles, the stuff that you're doing, it shows us that, that you actually are the person we hoped that you would be. And he's giving Jesus his compliment. And Jesus has this weird response, right? He says, well, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Now, what on earth is going on here? I think that what Jesus is saying is that first time we hear him use that phrase, be born again, right? So he's assuming Nicodemus is unborn. All right, so Nicodemus believes some things about Jesus, but while he's believing it, his life isn't really reflecting it. He might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's still coming to him at night. Which, by the way, Jesus doesn't scold him for asking questions coming to him at night, but he knows, listen, there's another step you have to take. You have to be born again so that you can enter the kingdom of God. And I think the point that Jesus was making is that the Pharisees thought we could use all the tactics from this present age manipulation, ostracizing people, controlling them, using our power over people, that we could use all the tactics of this present age to bring about the age that is to come. Another way we could say this is you don't get new creation results with old creation tactics. You cannot live the way that this present age works and then expect God to show up and do something powerful. He's saying you have to be born again. You have to put that whole part of your life to death and you have to be born into this whole new way of living and moving and being. I love Nicodemus because he hears you have to be born again and he has some questions. So in verse four, it says, how can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him, Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I love this. I don't know if he's being sarcastic or serious here. He's like, you say I have to be born again. I'm old. How am I supposed to like be born a second time? And in verse five, Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus essentially like, what do you mean you have to be born again? And Jesus said, be born with water and with spirit. Now, with water, Jesus is likely referring to baptism, which in his day was often a baptism of repentance. I know we hear that word repent sometimes, and we think of an angry preacher slamming a pulpit or, or a table, if you're a modern church, and saying, repent, turn or burn. But really, all that repent means is you're headed one direction. You need to stop. You need to turn around and go the other direction. And so I think Jesus is like reinforcing his point. Here's what I mean by born again. Like stop following this present age and you have to actually follow me instead. And when you do that, that's when you will receive the Holy Spirit. And for the first time, Nicodemus is hearing, wait, the Holy Spirit then is available to me? Like, is this really the age that's to come? And then his next question is, well, how can this happen? How do I receive the Spirit? Like none of this is making any sense to me. And so Jesus begins to explain this, and I want to jump down to verse 14. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I want you to jot this down because I don't have time to go over this whole story right now. Jesus talks about Moses and serpents and wilderness. It's a reference to a story from Numbers chapter 21. 
And in Numbers chapter 21, God's people have been wandering in the wilderness, and they're fussy. And they start complaining, God, why would you bring us out here? And you haven't showed up. You haven't done the thing you said you were going to do. Then they turn on Moses. Moses, how could you lead us out here? Are you even listening to God? And they're just complaining. And so all of a sudden, God sends some snakes, and the snakes start biting people. And the problem is, number one, that they're snakes to begin with. Number two, the snakes are poisonous, and people start dying. Now, they're in the wilderness. They don't have antidote in their back pocket. They can't, like, run to urgent care real quick and pay the copay and get fixed up real nice. So there's people dying. These snakes are attacking. You've heard of snakes on a plane? This is snakes in the desert. I mean, this is, like, my worst nightmare here. And so they ask God, God, can you please save us? So God tells Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent and attach it to your staff. And when you raise the staff up, anybody who looks at the serpent will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. Now, why does this happen? I mean, Jewish scholars look at this. They say, well, it's not like there's medicinal purposes in bronze snake. So like, don't go home and just erect a bronze snake and think, okay, we're going to be healthy from now on. But Jesus, what God was doing is he was saying, listen, if you believe in me, like if you just trust me to heal you, then I will deal with the poison from the snakes. See, we use this word believe sometimes, and we think it's like a mental assent to a set of theological propositions. Like, do you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Do you believe that he rose again? But in the Bible, the word for believe, you can also translate it as trust. Like, are you going, you've been complaining that I've led you into the wilderness, but if you look at this bronze snake, which shouldn't heal you in any way whatsoever, if you just trust me, I will heal you. And that's what happens. By the way, as a side note, that's why the medical symbol to this day is a snake wrapped around a pole. It comes from that story in Numbers chapter 21. And Jesus said, in the same way that that bronze serpent was lifted up and healed people from the poison of the snakes, I'm about to be lifted up. And he's talking about his crucifixion. And anyone who trusts in me and follows after me will be healed from the poison, not of those serpents, but of the serpent that spoke to Eve back in the Garden of Eden. That you will have eternal life. I will set you free from sin and oppression and suffering and of death. If you believe in me, then you will experience the age that is to come. You will experience eternal life. So Jesus isn't talking about where you go when you die. He's talking about the life we experience now. Are we still tracking? All right, now all of that was really my excuse just to get to John 3.16. It's like the most, I don't think I've ever preached on John 3.16 before because I just assume everybody's heard it a million times. In John 3.16, by the way, if your Bible has red letters, this verse may be in red, and in the red letters are words that Jesus spoke. But what most scholars think is Jesus stopped speaking in verse 15, and the rest of this is just John's commentary, kind of summarizing what Jesus' message was really about. In John 3.16, it says, For God loved the world in this way. I don't know about you. I remember in youth group, I was like, for God so loved the world. He's like, he's so, he loves you so much. That's actually not what it means. He's a, that's from the King James translation. He's like, this is the way we know that God loves us because he did this. So it's for God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes or trusts in him will not perish with this present age, but will have eternal life that begins now. Now, there's another translation written by um, maybe the foremost New Testament scholar of our day, a guy named N.T. Wright. It's called the Kingdom Translation. I want to read John 3.16 from that. This, you see, is how God loved the world. 
by giving his only special son so that everyone who trusts in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. See, Jesus wasn't inviting people just to go to heaven when they die. He's inviting them into a whole new way of living now. And the way that we experience that, it doesn't have to be some special prayer or believing theological propositions. It's by trusting in Jesus and actually following him. See, here's the problem. Because I don't know about you, but when we follow Jesus and we're invited into this eternal life now, do you still experience this present age? Like, do you still experience suffering and pain? But wait a second, I thought when the Messiah came, he was going to do away with this once and for all. See, the great reveal is not that it was two Messiahs coming once, but it was one Messiah that would come twice. So I've got one more timeline picture to show you. This present age is going on right now, and the first arrow is when Jesus came to this earth. And it was at that moment that the age that is to come is here. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God's at hand. The kingdom of God is with you. But then he also points to a second coming that one day he will come back and he will bring heaven to earth in full. And when that day comes, all of this present age will pass away. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness, no more suffering. And Jesus said there will be a day when the kingdom comes in full. So we find ourselves living at this unique time in history that uh, scholars call the already and the not yet. Because in one sense, God's kingdom is already here. Like we have access to eternal life right now. But on the other hand, it's still not here because there's brokenness and pain. And so on one hand, as Christians, we can sing songs of great triumph, like God is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But then we can also sing songs of lament, and we can pray prayers like, God, why did you let the cancer come back? God, why why is my body broken? Why did my marriage fail? See, on one hand, we can celebrate all the great things that God is doing, and on the other hand, we can look around and not ignore the reality that there is evil and suffering in this world. We live in the already and the not yet. So Jesus' invitation to us is not to fix all the problems in our life, is not to just make us better people. He's calling us to a new way of living, a way of living that is the way we were created. In fact, the only way we can truly image God and be the people he created us to be is we have to live the Jesus way. Now, I think there's three things that Jesus offers each and every one of us. When he invites us to follow in his way, I think the first thing he offers is an invitation. It's an invitation to a whole new way of living. It's, it's, I've got to learn how to live this way because the world tells me that when someone hurts me, I got to hurt them back. But the Jesus way says, if somebody hurts me, I turn the other cheek. Like the world tells me I got to scrape and claw to get to the top. But the Jesus way says, I've got to be humble and I've got to serve underneath people. Like the world's way is all about me and what I can accomplish and all the things that I can have. And the Jesus way is what can I give away for other people and for the sake of God? It's an invitation not just to go to heaven, but to live a whole different way now. The second thing Jesus offers us, he offers us purpose. Because get this, if we're living in between the already and the not yet, like we know that there is an age that is to come, then every moment of every day is an opportunity for us to bring heaven to earth. And this is why I think the gospel that's all about heaven and hell, it doesn't do us a whole lot of help because we're like, okay, so I'm good to go to heaven when I die, but what do I do in the meantime? And it's why we have so many people 
who follow Jesus and who love him, but who aren't actually living for him because they don't understand their purposes. Listen, you're going to have a conversation this afternoon in your family, opportunity to bring heaven to earth. You're going to be at work tomorrow and somebody is going to need help. You have an opportunity to bring heaven to earth. There's going to be somebody in your life going through a crisis. You have an opportunity to bring heaven to earth, both in big ways and in small. We can have purpose every single day. So the good news is we actually get to partner with Jesus in bringing heaven to earth. Now, the downside of that, though, is I I don't know about you, but I found like people aren't super great at following Jesus all the time. It's because we're all imperfect. I'm imperfect. We're all imperfect. And so we're never going to be able to do this on our own which is why we're looking forward to that day when Jesus finishes this whole thing. And that's why the third thing he offers us is hope. That no matter what we're going through, like it's not always going to be this way. Like no matter what baggage you have, what addiction you're fighting, no matter what skeletons you have in your closet, that dark secret that nobody knows. Jesus said, listen, there, there will be a day where all that will be wiped away. So I think that's why sometimes we're following Jesus and everything's going great, and then sometimes it seems like we're slipping back into our old habits because we're in between the already and the not yet. But the hope that Jesus offers is one day he will come and set everything right. Every tear will be wiped away. Everything broken will be put back together. The constant prayer throughout church history is like, Jesus, come. Like, fix this place now. But in the meantime, we're invited to follow him. We're given purpose every single day. And we have the hope that one day, not only will Jesus come back, but if we do trust in him, we will be resurrected to enjoy that new creation as well. We will get to be a part of heaven that has come to earth. All right. So I have a few minutes left. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to throw it open to Q&A. I think we have a text in question. And then if anybody has any other questions, you can just raise your hand. How can we identify areas in our life where we're acting like a Pharisee? Wow, what a great question. I wish I knew who sent that question. That's a whole sermon series right in and of itself. This is why it is so important for us to have people in our lives. Because we all have blind spots. We all have things in our life that we don't even realize we're acting like a Pharisee in this area. And then, by the way, that the Pharisees, they, they loved God. And they put up all these other rules because they wanted God to do what they wanted him to do. What stage of growth would that be at? I would say the child. Because I want God to do what I, I want him to do. And so what they needed is somebody like Jesus to come in and point out, there's some things you need to let go of. There's some things you need to surrender. There's some selfishness that has to be laid down. Because God's not operating on your timeline. God's not operating on your wish list. And so we need those people in our lives who will come in and say, you know what, Matt? This area right here, like, I think you're being real dogmatic here. I think you're being real selfish here. I think you're trying to manipulate God into doing what you want him to do. And so we need those people. That's why we talk about all the time the importance of being in a group or the importance of being around other followers of Jesus. So here's the thing. This new way of life, Jesus isn't inviting, like, you and Jesus to do this all together. As soon as someone follows him, he puts them with other people. We said it a couple weeks ago. The unintended consequence of following Jesus is being put with other people. Because all those one another's that we're supposed to love one another, listen, I think it really only counts when you got to love somebody that you don't really feel like loving. Like it's easy to love our friends and family. Jesus said, when you throw a party, don't just invite the people you already like who are going to return the favor. Go out to the people who can't do that. 
Like, it's easy to love the people who look, act, and think like us, but it's real hard to love the person who posts that annoying stuff on social media and who says things that really hurt your feelings. But see, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Great, great question. Anybody else have a question? You just raise your hand. It's a little dark, so you may have to wave it back and forth if you do. All right, I killed it today. We got no questions. That's awesome. Um, I would encourage you to, even if you didn't ask a question or text it in, any questions you have, write them down in your notebooks. And when you get in your life groups together, you guys ask questions to each other. You know, I didn't go up on a mountaintop and come down with golden tablets with a sermon for this week. I wish it was that easy. It's not. And and in the same way, you guys can learn from each other. Your questions are going to spur one another on. And here's the great thing. You can ask a question. If everybody says, I don't know, no harm, no foul. That's a good, good place to be. So to continue to encourage you to ask questions, to pursue Jesus. I want to really offer a, a moment of invitation myself here. Um, I grew up in, in an era, and I've, I've done this as well, where you know, at the end of the sermon, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you want to give your life to Jesus, would you raise your hand? And you know, we've all been in those services where you're like peeking around, and the pastor's like, I got one over here and one over here. And you're like, ain't nobody raised their hands in three months here. You know, like no hands going up. <laughs> pastor's trying to, to build some momentum. And I think maybe because of that, and then also on Easter, it's like the same three people get saved every Easter. And it's like, okay, like, I love that you're passionate about Jesus here, but let's kind of move forward in this. And so I think on in some level, I can be resistant in this day and age, just being honest about like offering this invitation. But I do think if you're here today and you are unborn, like this is an opportunity for you to say, you know what? I've counted the cost. I understand what Jesus is asking me to do. I know it's not going to be easy, but I know that I've been living a life marked by this present age, and I want what Jesus is inviting me to. And it doesn't mean you're perfect, and it definitely doesn't mean life is going to be easy from here on out. But there is a moment here of invitation for you, and if that's a decision you want to make, in just a moment, we're going to worship through communion. And during that time, if you're ready to make that decision, there's a card on the seat pocket in front of you. If you just fill that out and mark that you want to begin a relationship with Jesus and just drop it at the black baskets at the back, you're not going to get on an email list or anything. I just personally want to email you with some resources to help you start off your spiritual infancy the strongest that you can. But I think for a lot of us who are here, and we've made that decision a long time ago, I hope that what today is is a reminder that there's probably areas in all of our life that look more like this present age than the age that is to come. And maybe there's some areas in our life that we need to surrender, that we need to let go. Whatever that looks like for you, materialism, pride, selfishness, are there areas that we need to surrender? Because one day, all of that stuff will be wiped away. But I don't want to wait till that day to look like Jesus. When he comes back, I want him to find me ready to go. And so whatever it is, we'll continue with the time of communion and prayer. Our prayer stations will be open down front. There's prayer cards. You can just write your prayer to God and put it right in that prayer jar. You can light a candle, which throughout church history is represented offering our prayers to God. And of course, we have our communion stations around the room. But in this moment, maybe take that first step with Jesus or just ask him, what in my life is still aligned with this present age that you're asking me to surrender today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that you didn't just come so we go to heaven when we die. You came so we could have eternal life that starts now. And I pray for each and every person who maybe they're here today and they would consider themselves unborn. 
that maybe in this moment your spirit would move. You would give them the boldness and strength just to take that first step of saying, I'm going to trust you, Jesus, even when the world tells me not to. And I pray that as they make that step, that your spirit would guide them and be with them to start their spiritual journey as strong as they can. And I pray for those of us who've already made that decision, that in whatever area of life we've been hanging on to that doesn't look like you, that your spirit would in this moment put your finger on that aspect of our lives and give us the boldness to surrender that to you in this moment. Because Jesus, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.